this is the Becker's Healthcare Podcast, created by the team of Becker's Healthcare, a multimedia company devoted to the people who power U.S. healthcare. Four new 15-minute episodes are released daily, containing industry news, analysis, and thought leadership from powerful healthcare decision makers. Support our show by leaving it a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or other platforms you use. It's a chance to tell us what you like about the show and act on your feedback. Thanks for listening. Now here's the episode. This is the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm Molly Gamble, Vice President Editorial, and today I'm spending time with Kate Becker. Kate is the CEO of University of New Mexico Hospital. Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for being my guest. How are you today, and where do we find you? Molly, thanks for having me. I'm in Albuquerque at the University of New Mexico Hospital. It's uh, hot here, like it is everywhere, but at least here it's not too humid, so we're enjoying the sunshine, and it's not too bad. That's great. You know, for, for listeners who might be less familiar with your organization, Kate, can you share a couple key facts or insights to help them better appreciate and, and understand the perspective you bring today? I'd be happy to. And we are a little bit unique. Um, so UNM Hospital was created in 1952 based on a federal contract between the Bernalillo County Commission and what was then the Bureau of Indian Affairs, it's today the Indian Health Service. So we serve three missions, which I don't think, honestly, there's anybody else quite like us in the country. We are the safety net hospital for Bernalillo County because of that foundation. We are the Albuquerque area Indian Health Service Hospital because of that foundation. And because we are part of the University of New Mexico and the teaching hospital for the School of Medicine here, we're also the only academic medical center in the state of New Mexico. So it's a little bit unique. Um, we have a variety of stakeholders who are very engaged with us, um, but we're very fortunate to have them. And New Mexico is a, a big state. Um, it's the fifth largest state in terms of geography, but we have a small population. It's only about 2 million people in the whole state. So there are lots of counties Cook County is one of them that have more people than the whole state of New Mexico has. And so what that means is that we provide services for everybody in the state. We are the only level one trauma center. We're the only level one neonatal intensive care unit. We're the state's child psychiatric hospital. We're the state's children's hospital. Um, we just we're the, I would say, ones and onlys of a lot of things in a very diverse, very big State. Wow. Kate, did you say you're the only level one trauma center in the state? We are. Okay. Wow. You just, I mean, I think, and how we categorize different hospitals, you know, there's some that can fall into a couple of different categories. You just described some really big ones for your organization only Safety Net Hospital for the county, Albuquerque's Indian Health Services Hospital, the only teaching hospital or academic medical center in the state. Um, and then in addition to all the other exclusive and onlys that you just outlined for us, I mean, that's, that makes you of New Mexico Hospital a really unique organization. Absolutely. And I think that's um, one of the things that, that draws people to us, but it's also, I would say, one of the um, sort of responsibilities that we have that we're really proud of um, is we want to provide healthcare for New Mexicans in New Mexico. Because if this organization doesn't have the service, folks are going to have to go to Arizona or Colorado or Texas. And there's a lot of families that can't afford that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, speaking of responsibility, I know this past spring, right, Kate, you launched a healthcare listening tour. 
And in reading about that, I loved the sounds of that. And I wanted to learn more from you about what it entailed, what it actually required of you, and then your goals and objectives going into it and launching it. And then also the most valuable findings or outcomes, what what came from it? Can you talk about the listening tour? I'd be happy to. Um, so the listening sessions that we launched were in part um, connected to our every three-year community health needs assessment. So every three years, like most hospitals in the country, um, we do a community health needs assessment and we conduct sessions and ask our community two questions, really. One is, what's going well? What are we doing that we should keep doing? And the other is, what can we do better? Um, what do you need more of or what can we do in a more appropriate way? And so because we're the Bernalillo County Safety Net Hospital, um, we did a variety of listening sessions in the county to learn more about what folks in the county needed. Um, we also have upcoming a session at the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center to meet with the tribes and Pueblos um, to learn more from the community that's served both by the Indian Health Service and by those tribes and Pueblos. Um, they say they have 638 clinics, which means that the tribe or Pueblo is running its own health service. Um, the Indian Health Service isn't running their service. And so we want to meet with them and understand the same answers to those two questions. And really for me, um, you know, people in the role that I'm in, we talk a lot, right? And I think um, the thing that was most helpful to me and really the purpose of these sessions was for me to not talk um, and really listen and try to just understand better what our community needs and how we can meet those needs. But I would say that um, we got great feedback. We've had really good participation and, you know, in part because of the unique sort of place that we are, um, the community really does know who we are and they respond to us, which is great. Um, but I would say the biggest item of feedback that we got was just the need for more services. Mm. And I think, you know, across the country, that's true. And it's especially true in the area of behavioral health. Um, Post-COVID, I think we're, we're starting to figure out that the new normal um, means that we've lost folks from the healthcare workforce. A lot of people retired, you know, who had maybe stuck it out an extra year or two after the pandemic started, and then now they are ready to really retire. A lot of people were burned out. Um, this hospital was running at the height of the pandemic at 150% of our capacity. We had turned every conceivable space into inpatient beds, and that's hard, and people can't work at that pace indefinitely. And so with fewer providers, we're catching up on, and this is true everywhere, a lot of deferred healthcare from that time and a lot of new needs, a lot of uh, both adults and children who are suffering from social isolation, anxiety, just all of the sort of, I guess, sequela of the pandemic. And that's the thing I think we heard the most was people need more care. They need more access. Um, they need more engagement. You know, one of the great things about how everybody pivoted during the pandemic to provide virtual services was that we continued to connect with people, but we're all human. People need that in-person connection. And so we're seeing people, of course, come back in person to the clinics and come back in person in the hospital and, and they are sicker. And so I think for not just us, but for all hospitals, 
what we're hearing is we need more help. And I, I think that's just a really important message for everybody. Mm -hmm. And Kate, in those calls for more services, I'm curious, you mentioned a big emphasis on behavioral health, which makes sense and I think is akin to what we're seeing play out nationally too. But I was curious if any of those services or needs raised were those that wouldn't traditionally sit in the acute care health system orbit, um, whether it was something a bit more at an intersection with social services or outside of the traditional health system. Did you hear anything from your community about things that perhaps aren't brick and mortar hospital centric care, but that still present opportunities for UNMH? That's a great question, Molly. And the answer is yes. We heard a lot from our community about both how we can better provide transitions of care. So how we help folks as they return to you know, their home or whatever their setting is, um, how we can support those transitions better. And we heard quite a bit from what I would say are more general social needs. Housing um, emerged very strongly as something that folks need help with. Um, one of the things that, that we've launched this year, you know, CMS this year added the uh, screening for social determinants of health for inpatients. We had already been doing that work in the outpatient setting through a pilot program um, through our Office of Community Health. And so when we expanded it to the inpatient questions, which are housing, transportation, food security, interpersonal violence, and utilities, when we expanded it to the inpatient setting, we didn't want to just ask the question and have people um, tell us, yes, I need help with these things and not do anything about it because that's terrible for the patient and it's terrible for the person asking the question. It's just awful. So we wanted to make sure we were providing follow-up on that. Are we connecting folks to community resources? Are we making sure that they know what's there in terms of health, whatever the item is that they've mentioned? We've really seen uh, a lot of very positive feedback from the community and from our providers. Um, We've embedded community health workers in the hospital to help with when folks have answers to those questions that are positive in those screenings, that we connect them to community resources for housing or for food or for transportation or utilities or whatever it might be. And I think that's, that's also something that people are seeing around the country is healthcare is a place where people feel like they can answer those questions in an honest way. And if we can make sure that we connect to our community and our community's resources. Hospitals can't do everything, but we can be that, that point of connection and support and help create that bridge so that folks can get better in a more complete way, for lack of a better description. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and then I think, you know, the other thing too that's been playing out across the country has been increased violence and aggression toward healthcare workers. This has been such an unfortunate pattern to report on from afar, you know, not being on the ground, nonetheless, still even just hearing about it and reporting different events on it, Kate, has been just so troubling. And I wanted to see what has this been like being so close to it as it unfolds within your own organization. Can you describe what healthcare workers have experienced with this when it comes to increased hostility playing out in emergency rooms in the care setting toward healthcare workers? Thanks for that question, Molly. And you're right. I mean, it has definitely increased over time. And I think we've seen a probably couple of, of 
significant things. One is just verbal abuse, much more um, people being really unpleasant and unkind verbally to healthcare workers. And I think that's that's hard, kind of back to the, the burnout question of people feel like they really went above and beyond and to have somebody yelling at you and, you know, telling you that you don't know what you're doing is not going to make you feel like they appreciate how hard you're working. But I think to your question, even more troubling is the increase in physical violence um, and people hitting and spitting and even biting, um, kicking. And I think one of the things that... Um, I really am proud of is the way our security team here has engaged um, to try to make sure that our healthcare workers feel protected and engaged because a security team at a hospital has a really difficult job. It's not traditional law enforcement where they are um, confronting somebody and trying to deal with a specific problem. They're trying to deal with a patient and trying to balance that um, thoughtful approach to someone who's in pain, um, who's where they are in a hospital because something is wrong and protect the healthcare workers at the same time is difficult. I don't know what the answer is. It's a, it's a gigantic social problem, but I do think that the more we can teach both our staff and our security teams to recognize and work on de-escalation techniques and how to take care of themselves in those situations, um, the better positioned we are to be able to provide the health care that people need. It, it is a really serious problem. And we're lucky in this state, you know, that the legislators have recognized that, that this is something that should be um, criminal and criminalized, but it's still difficult because for law enforcement to recognize whether the person is being that aggressive because of their health condition or they're being that aggressive because they just are that aggressive um, is difficult. And so working closely with outside law enforcement agencies to make sure that we feel confident when they can bring forward cases to the county attorney and when they can bring forward cases to prosecute is also important. It takes a really close partnership across law enforcement and security at the hospitals and the healthcare workers. So I, again, I don't know the solution, but it's definitely something that has become more of a problem. Mm -hmm. And I guess the, you know, the other question too, Kay, is in reporting on these events, usually there's a beginning, a middle and an end, but my mind always goes toward the secondhand effects. You know, it's, it's not just the story of violence playing out in hospitals and health systems against workers. It's not just those isolated events. I think that to your point, there might be something larger building here. And beyond, I guess, the first and the primary basic needs of safety, you know, can you talk about any other secondhand repercussions that are important to keep in mind? What else is at risk of occurring in whether it be culturally or for workers if they continue to experience these uh, the effects of violence playing out in their organizations? Thanks for that question. I think one of the um, most obvious risks is people just decide they don't want to do this kind of work anymore. You know, people who work in healthcare are people who are called to do that work. Um, to me, it's a little bit like teaching or uh, ministry. It's, some, it's a job that you are called to do. And 
they want to do that work. They want to take care of their fellow humans. They want to ease their pain when they're suffering. They want to help them when they don't feel well. And it's really disheartening um, on a personal level when some sort of violent act um, interferes with their ability to feel like they can pursue that work that they are called to. And so I think that contributes certainly to the burnout that we hear reported among healthcare workers. I think all of the efforts that every hospital and health system makes to improve wellness among their team members um, has to take this into account because you're trying to build the morale of a group of people who want to be doing this work. It can be in a difficult environment, like the times when we're over capacity or the pandemic, for example, or other things, but, but everybody's human and you need to feel like the people you're taking care of at least know that you're trying to take care of them. They don't have to be, you know, super thankful. They don't have to tell you how wonderful you are, but it helps if they at least know that you're trying to help them. And I think that's one of the things that gets undermined in this more aggressive environment. Mm-hmm. That goodwill, right? That to the um, some assuming the worst about someone, seeing them as a a partner in your wellness and trying to help you. It, it was once it seemed like a really basic assumption of our health system that through the years and the pandemic and a lot of tension um, was chipped away at a bit. So it seems like we're in need of a return. I would agree with that completely, and I think whatever we can do to encourage people to understand that, you know, everybody in a hospital is trying to help you. Um, One of the things I say, I do new employee orientation here a couple times a month. And one of the things I say in all of those sessions is, you know, we work in a hospital, we come here, we have lunch, we talk to our coworkers, we ask how their weekend was, we're comfortable here. Nobody else is. Everybody else here is scared. Everybody else here is, they're worried about themselves or their family member or their friend. They're in pain. They're anxious. And we need to recognize that and we need to be compassionate and we need to respect that that's where they're coming from. But that's not as we're afraid of them because they're threatening us. That's a much scarier level of um, interaction, I guess I would say. And it's not common, certainly. It's not the majority of people, but but it is more significant than it used to be. Sure, sure. Well, let's move on. And Kate, I know, I mean, you've really, I think, done a, a great job of outlining how UNMH is so integral and critical to the community in a number of ways, but it's about to be important in another way with next week undertaking medical and behavioral health services and healthcare at the county jail. Can you tell us about this change and this undertaking? Um, how did it come to be? How was care changed? And, and now you are going to be the provider of such services. And also as CEO, what's been top of mind as you begin to roll out this transition next week? Well, thanks for asking. Um, so the Bernalillo County Metropolitan Detention Center is the largest jail in the state um, in terms of a jail, not a prison. And that county jail, has had uh, 
corrections medicine providers there for the last several years um, who are uh, national corrections medicine providers, and that's what they do, and that's good. Um, but the county really felt that uh, they needed to get a local partner. And, you know, UNMH isn't going anywhere. We're going to be here in Bernalillo County forever, I think. And so the county reached out and asked if we would consider um, taking on the medical and behavioral health services at the jail. And we said yes, um, because we do really partner closely with the county initiatives. And one of the biggest ones is behavioral health. Um, we have a new crisis center that actually will be opening in February under construction right now on our campus. That's a joint project between us and the county. And so when we thought about the jail and the population of folks who maybe are there for a few days and then released, many of those patients we also see in our emergency room. And so by taking over those services, we could really improve continuity of care for that patient population. Um, really make a difference in people's opportunity to overall um, have better health outcomes. And so one of the uh, folks we reached out to was actually CIRMAC Health Services, which is Cook County's services for the Cook County Jail. Um, and they've been incredibly helpful, and we really are grateful for their uh, education and information they've provided for us. So we're looking forward to it. Uh, it's a big undertaking for us um, because it's a it's a fairly good sized jail. It has about 1,950 inmates on any given day, and so we are um, excited about it. Uh, a little nervous, and really thankful for the opportunity to partner with the county on making healthcare better for folks at the jail and for folks in the community who are patients of ours and the jails. And so it's, it's just gonna be a better experience all the way around. Mm -hmm. Okay, I wanna wish you luck with that initiative as you kick it off just next week as the county jail comes under the UNMH umbrella of how services are and care is delivered. I also wanna thank you again for being my guest today. This has been Kate Becker, CEO of the University of New Mexico Hospital. We so appreciate your time and your insights from a really interesting organization, Kate. You sit at a bird's eye view in terms of the number of roles that this organization plays to the state and the community. So thank you so much for joining me and sharing your thoughts. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. It's so important for leaders at the top of organizations to keep learning, stay sharp, grow their networks. To help our audience better do this in a more simplified, personalized, and meaningful way, Becker's Healthcare has launched MyBHC. It's your trusted Becker's Healthcare experience and more with content, connections, events, and learning opportunities. Join the community free of charge at www.my.beckershospitalreview.com and we'll see you there. Mm -hmm.